45. Genesis chapter 45. Ryan asked a good question earlier. How much longer are we going to be in Genesis? And I say, that's a good question. So, uh, last week, you'll remember, not only did we not preach one whole verse or cover one whole verse, we just covered one sentence. God sent me before you. And that's all we covered. And it was a great time of getting to actually see the providence and sovereignty of God at work, that he had been planning this reunion before he ever even created anything, and he oversaw that it would come about. He made it come about through his providence and his sovereignty. And so Joseph and his brothers have just had this amazing reunion, and they're crying, and they're weeping, and it's this family reunion, and then Pharaoh overhears everything. And Pharaoh tells Joseph, hey, I'm going to send you with a bunch of stuff, so happy your family's here. I'm going to give you a bunch of donkeys and a bunch of gifts and money and all this kind of stuff. You go back and get your father and bring him here. So they're going to do that. They're going to send the brothers back to get the father, and Jacob is going to come and be part of this reunion. And Genesis 45 and 46, which we're going to try to cover a bit of both, it's so cool because there are so many interesting things that happen and are said in these chapters that really make us think about everything we've learned in Genesis so far, right? It's full of uh, things that I would call callbacks and also Easter eggs, okay? So uh, the other day, Anna and I were driving, this probably a week or so ago, and Judah was in the back seat and he was watching a Thomas the Train movie. Now, we've seen pretty much every new Thomas the Train movie. He is obsessed with Thomas the Train, at least he was for a while. And they were singing a song, and we realized as they were singing that song, it was a callback, and they were referencing every Thomas movie they had done up to that point. And, uh, of course, we were like, it's sad that we can recognize these callbacks. And, and we're like, oh, that's from that one, and that one's from that one. So, but we're recognizing all that. But the thing is, you would totally miss it if you weren't familiar with all those other movies, right? And so the callback only works if you're familiar with everything that's come beforehand. But there are also these things called Easter eggs, right? And superhero movies love these things where they'll put like a little picture of something in there, a little reference to something, and it's typically what's coming ahead, what's going to be coming in the future. And so they'll do like, oh, here's a picture of Spider-Man. Oh, he's, they're going to do a new Spider-Man movie or something like that. And it's a little Easter egg to let you know what's coming in the future. And that's what Genesis 45 and 46 is just absolutely full of. You get these callbacks and you get these Easter eggs, things that make us look back to the beginning of Genesis. Because basically all the themes of Genesis are in this little funnel and they all come to a head in these final chapters of Genesis. And so if you're unfamiliar with everything that's come beforehand, you're going to miss these entirely. But if you've been a careful student of the Bible, and you've been carefully studying Genesis for two years, verse by verse, you should be able to catch at least some of these. But each one of these callbacks is also an Easter egg that points us forward, and it's all about how God is undoing sin's curse. And we get to see the beautiful way in which God is undoing the curse of sin that we read about all the way back in Genesis 3. All right, so here's where I want to start. I want us to start in Genesis 45, verses 21 through 24. And I'll read these, and then I'm going to ask you, what's the callback? And y'all are all going to get it first try. So, Genesis 45, 21 through 24. The sons of Israel did so, 
And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the goods of Egypt, the good things of Egypt, and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, this is great, do not quarrel on the way. <laughs> he knows his brothers so well. I know y'all are prone to fight. I know y'all just saw what I gave to Benjamin. Y'all didn't get that much. Don't fight on the way home, okay? And he sends them on their way. Now, here's the question. What's the callback? There was a very, very interesting callback for one of the main themes of Genesis that's going to run throughout the entire Bible. What's the callback? Something very interesting just happened. He gave them clothes, that's right. Here's the question, why do they need clothes? Anybody remember why they needed clothes? Oh, by the way, I also love all the, oh, it's because I know where you're already thinking, so that's great, that's so good. Why do they need clothes? What happened in Genesis 44, 13? They tore their clothes. Nothing's changed since then. They, they immediately went from tearing their clothes back to Egypt, and they're standing there in front of Jacob with ripped and torn clothes. They are inadequately covered in this moment. Now, why did they rip their clothes? Do you remember why? They found that cup, right? And it was in Benjamin's sack. And they had just said, hey, listen, we're so innocent. If you find that in anyone's sack, you can kill that guy. And then they find it in Benjamin's sack. And they're like, oh, no. But then they realize, do you remember what Judah said? Judah's going to be the one who says this. They realize collectively together the reason all this is happening to them is why? Because of their sin. So their sin has exposed them, Right? They are finally being exposed. They thought they got away with it. They thought they had done a pretty good job hiding it. And, and, and they thought that they had gotten away with it for so long. And then all this bad stuff happens and they realize God did not forget about that sin. And now God has exposed our sins. And so they rip off their clothing. They tear it. Also, another little interesting tidbit. That's exactly what they did to Joseph, right? It all started with torn robes and clothing that led to disaster, and it kind of comes full circle with torn clothing and everything. But they ripped their clothing, and there they stand. They've been exposed. Their sin has exposed them. They're inadequately covered. And Jacob, or Joseph, rather, in an act of pure grace, gives them clothing. Why is that a callback? Why is it significant? Exactly. Reminds us of God covering Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8 says that after Adam and Eve had sinned against God, what did they realize? Oh no. <laughs> They're naked. And so they've got to do something about this. They only realized they were naked, exposed because of their sin. And so when they are exposed by their sin and they realize that they're naked, they run and they grab what? Fig leaves. 
and they try to sew them together, and they try to cover themselves. Was that an adequate, sufficient covering? No. I've got a fig tree at my house. I can tell you it is not adequate. I've never tried to wear them, but I can just, I know from looking, it wouldn't work, okay? So it wouldn't have been good enough. And so this is what they did, though. They were trying to hide from God. They were trying to cover up their own sin. They were trying to do all this themselves, and God was basically telling them, I see you. He's like, I I know where you're at. Why are you hiding? Like, I can see I'm God. I I know where you're at. You cannot hide from God. You can't hide your sin from God. No amount of covering that you try to do is going to be sufficient or adequate. And so God announces a curse. He announces what's going to come. But then he does something amazing. What does he do? What does God do? In Genesis 3, 21. Do I know? Yes, he does. Yeah. Okay, I did not show Michael my notes. He's getting ahead. I didn't ask where the Easter egg is yet, Michael. But we're getting there, so, okay. But let's just, (laughs) okay, yeah, so let's just focus on what he said there, though, that God covered Adam and Eve. Just as Joseph provides clothes to his brothers in an act of pure grace, he didn't have to give them anything. God, in an act of pure grace, covered Adam and Eve with a sufficient covering. And it was saying, it was an act in which God was saying, I am going to be the one to cover your shame. I'm going to be the one to cover your sin. You can't do it. It will never be enough. But I can do it. I'm going to do it. And this is what it looks like. And so, Where's the Easter egg? What's the thing pointing us forward? Michael, now you can talk. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It, it, it points us forward to the sacrifice of Christ, which is ultimately going to cover us in our sin, right? Because this is something interesting. The Bible portrays humanity as wearing these dirty robes all the time, right? We've got these dirty robes. And what's so interesting is that these robes, if you think about it, they expose us as sinners, right? If you had a, everybody wearing, let's say, white, and then someone shows up wearing neon green, that person's going to stand out, right? <laughs> or, or if everybody's got these clean clothes on, and then you see someone show up, and the clothes are just filthy, dirty, like I've come out from the garden after the rain, and I'm just covered in mud and everything, I'm going to stand out. That's going to expose the fact that I've been out in the garden. The Bible says our dirty robes exposes the fact that we are sinners. They wouldn't be dirty if we weren't sinners. And here's the interesting thing. The Bible says the way that your robes are no longer dirty is you plunge them, you wash them, you cover them in blood. The blood of the Lamb, according to the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 7 and verse 14, that those robes become new, and clean when they are covered in blood, the blood of Jesus. And so our sins are actually covered that way. And then there's actually this passage from Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24, where it actually talks about putting off the what? The old self. You put off the old self, it has the language of taking off clothing that's old and dirty and needs to be washed. You take off the old self and you put on the what? The new self who is in Christ Jesus. 
And so the Bible is giving us this picture here, a very simple thing that we'd be easily tempted to read over. Joseph gave his brother clothes. But we see that it's actually very significant because it points us back to the beginning when God clothed Adam and Eve, and it points us forward to Christ who will ultimately cover our sin and provide us with this new self. And so here's what I would say. In Christ, God provides a covering for sin. In Christ, God provides a covering for sin. And that's the the fulfillment that we're seeing here. That is how God is undoing the curse of sin that exposes us, that we can't cover ourselves. God says, I'm taking care of it in Christ Jesus. He will provide the covering for sin. So so then, here we go. We're going to continue reading. Genesis 45, verses 25 Uh, Through 46, verse 27, I know that seems like a lot, but we're not going to read all the names that it lists. So just, I mean, we could, but it would take up some time. So starting in verse 25, so they went up out of Egypt and they came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now that's amazing. Imagine being Jacob in that moment. You've been thinking your kid is dead for over 20 years. And you just hear, not only is he alive, he's the ruler over all of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to them, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough, Uh, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. And he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, uh, their little ones, their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. And Jacob, all of his offspring with him, his sons, his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his son's daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Long list of names. Then you get down to verses 26 through 27. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt were his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born uh, to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now, here's something very important to notice. Uh, Beersheba, the place. Why is that significant? Anybody remember? A little bit of Genesis history here. Possibly. Okay, so here's something very interesting. In Genesis 21, 33, Abraham 
planted a tamarisk tree there, and he worshiped the Lord. And then shortly after that, God reaffirms his covenant with Abraham. Tells him everything he's going to do. He's the first patriarch to set up a type of altar and worship the Lord there and have God reaffirm his covenant to him. But then, in Genesis 26, 33 to 25, Isaac builds an altar, and he worships the Lord, and God reaffirms his covenant. So the Bible talks about three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who is the only patriarch in the Bible at this point who has not set up some type of altar and worshiped in Beersheba and had a covenant from God made to him? Jacob. And here we have that. He's he's basically kind of checking off a bucket list before he dies. And this is one of the last things that he needs to fulfill that role of being the patriarch of the people of God. And so he sets up this altar in Beersheba, and he worships the Lord there, and God reaffirms his covenant to Jacob that he had done in other places in Genesis, but he is finally saying it with his own mouth to Jacob, and Jacob is receiving the covenant promises that, hey, you're going to get to this foreign land, and guess what? I'm going to make you into a great nation. It's going to happen. But there's some important language being used here that should draw our attention back to earlier chapters in Genesis. Because remember, Joseph described his family as escaped remnants. Now, last week I made a a pretty big point about that, that when Joseph was talking, he used the word remnants twice. The first one referred to something that's left over. It's just kind of what's left behind. But the second one, and I told you this would be important, The second one referred to a group of people who had escaped some sort of disaster or tragedy, and they were the survivors of that which they had escaped. Joseph specifically used that language to describe the brothers and the family. Here's my question to you. What are they escaping from? Famine, exactly. Famine, which will lead to death, obviously. And so the way that this is written is very interesting. They're escaping famine, and it's written in such a way that it makes you think that everybody on earth is going to experience this famine, and there is only one safe place. Where's that safe place? Egypt. So there's going to be this worldwide disaster, but the family is going to escape that disaster by taking safety in one place. And so the Bible uses this phrase repeatedly. You might have picked up on it. They went down into Egypt into Egypt, into Egypt, into Egypt. And so you get a bunch of interesting things in this chapter, right? Here's what you get. You get God making a covenant with the head of a household. Then you get a family escaping worldwide disaster by going into something, Egypt. And then you also get a uh, list of descendants of all the people who make it out safely from that disaster. Now, when you put all that together... What's the callback? This is an easy one to miss, but it's very important. Think about all those things we just mentioned. There's going to be a worldwide disaster. One safe place. Oh, Michael got it. Noah. That's right. Noah and the flood narrative. Isn't that cool? Because here's something very interesting, right? So Genesis chapters 6 through 10 is where you get this, the flood narrative. 
Genesis 6 through 10, it consistently uses the phrase, they went into the ark, into the ark, into the ark, the same way it's written here, into Egypt, into Egypt, into Egypt. But not only that, it was kind of an unexpected way of salvation. I guess that's one way to say it, right? Because you remember Noah's building this huge ark, and they're thinking, this guy says it's going to rain? <laughs> What's that? We, we hadn't even seen it before. You know, this is, this is strange. This is not what I would expect, and yet it's going to become the one place of safety from this worldwide disaster, right? And who's going to go in? A family. And so you see in those chapters, worldwide disaster, one place of safety, they go into that place that is kind of unexpected. And then while they're in there, they eventually make it out. You have God making a covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. And then in Genesis chapter 10, you get the table of nations, all the descendants that come from Noah and his family. Now you might be thinking to yourself, pastor, you're grasping at strolls here. Okay, I know you like to look at the wording. I know you like to pick up on these things. I think you're grasping at straws here. So I'm just going to try to put the little nail in the coffin here. In verse 27 of Genesis that we just read, how many people did it say came with the family of Jacob to Egypt? It's, it didn't have to say a number, but it did. 70, right? You go back to Genesis 10. It lists the descendants of the three sons of Noah. Shem, there are 26. Ham, there are 30. And Japheth, there are 14. Put that together and you get 70. Isn't that interesting? And so here you have a callback to the flood narrative. This worldwide disaster with one place of safety from this disaster that's going to befall everybody and every person on earth except for this one family in this place of safety. The people who are going to come out of it are 70. God's making a covenant with the head of the household. You have the same language, into Egypt, into the ark. And so you have all of this great language, but there's also an Easter egg. What's the thing pointing us forward? What's the fulfillment of this? You see the first type of this in the flood narrative. You see it reimagined here in the story of Joseph and Jacob and their family. But what's the fulfillment of this? In Christ. How? Through the cross. Because that's another unexpected way of salvation, isn't it? Right? First of all, you've got Jesus. Anybody remember why he was special in the eyes of the world? Yeah, exactly. They didn't have a reason either. <laughs> they esteemed him not, the Bible says. He was nothing to look at. He was a carpenter from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Yeah, that's what they were saying, right? There was nothing very special about him in the eyes of the world. He was an unexpected savior. And then salvation was going to be by way of the cross. Well, this would have been ridiculous in the mind of the Gentiles, right? As Joseph in his First Corinthians series pointed out, you worship a crucified carpenter from Nazareth. That's ridiculous. And to the Jews, what was it to them? It was a stumbling block, wasn't it? Because the Bible says in Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23, and also Galatians 3, 13, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Jesus, of course, was hanged on a tree. And so it's this unexpected way of salvation, but we have to understand that 
This same language is used of Jesus into the ark, into the ark, into Egypt, into Egypt. You read Ephesians chapter 1, you're going to read in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. You're going to read that our lives are hidden in Christ. The Bible portrays Jesus as being a type of ark. He is the one place of safety and refuge from a worldwide judgment that is coming from God. So so just as the people in the ark were led safely through the waters of God's judgment, and just as Jacob's family into Egypt was brought safely away from this famine that was happening to the land, so too, in Jesus, God brings us safely through the final judgment so that we don't experience condemnation, we don't experience wrath, we don't experience hell, we experience salvation in Christ. Now that's amazing, is it not? That Jesus is our ark. He's our Egypt in a way, which sounds wrong because you're like, oh, that's unexpected. Egypt, that foreign place, but God used even that as a means of salvation for his people. And, And so you're seeing here that God, in Christ, God provides the means of salvation. In Christ, God provides the means of salvation. And that salvation is Jesus and the cross, and he is our ark. In him, we're led safely through the judgment of God, which, again, that's even a picture of baptism, right? Because baptism is saying that we have been united with Christ, but then what do you do? You go through waters, don't you? Down into the waters. Well, how are you brought safely to the waters of that judgment? Because the waters are symbolizing death and the judgment of God. How are you brought safely through those waters? Your life has been hidden in Christ. You die with Christ, you're resurrected in Christ. And so we're in Christ, led safely through the waters in the judgment of God. He's provided the way of salvation. All right, now this final section, we'll go through this one very quickly. But verses 28 through 34, I just want to hit this very quickly. 28 to 34. This is what the Bible says. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. Now, there's probably a sermon there about sending Judah ahead to show the way, but we're not getting into that tonight. But before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Okay? So there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Every shepherd is an abomination in the eyes of the Egyptians, but there's one place for shepherds in Egypt. And it was called Goshen. Very interesting word, okay? Goshen. Now, you have to do a lot of research to find out about Goshen, but here's what you'll learn about Goshen. It was pretty much the cream of the crop when it came to Egypt, okay? It was a place of of shepherds, so 
you have to understand, it was also in the east of Egypt. And it was on the Nile Delta. So it was a very fertile place. So it's in the east of Egypt. It's on the Nile Delta. And here's the interesting thing about Goshen, if you can just picture it. On one side, the main thing coming through this area is the Nile River on one side. And then on the other side is the most narrow part of the Red Sea. So it's like kind of like another river almost because it's so narrow. And just right there in the middle of that, you have Goshen. And because it was on the Nile Delta, it was lush. I mean, it was abounding in good growth and good vegetation, good pasture. And, and so you just get this image of this very, when you think about Egypt, you don't think about greenery, but, but you get this picture of this very green place here in Egypt that's surrounded by water, that's abounding in vegetation, and the Bible's going to tell us in Exodus chapter 1, it's in this very place, that, and it uses this language, that the people of Israel were fruitful and multiplied. In this very place, in the land of Goshen. Now, think about this for a moment, all right? I'm going to say it like this. Here we have the people of God in a luscious place of good vegetation in the east, surrounded by rivers and water, where they are fruitful and multiply. What's the callback? The garden. It's the Garden of Eden, right? You have, in Egypt, this place that's unexpected, a foreign land, a little garden of Eden. In fact, now, I don't buy into this, so I'm just going to put it up here so you can see it. Personally, I, I'm not on board with this yet, but I've heard some people, oh, man, where do you even write on this thing? So, the word Goshen in Hebrew is Gimel, Shin, Nun, all right? So that's, you can just imagine, G, S, and N, okay? The word garden is Gimel, Nun, G, in. And so there are some biblical scholars who are trying to claim that there's even a word play here because you've got the first and last letter between Goshen and Garden. Personally, I don't buy into it. I think that's a little bit of a stretch. But nonetheless, you don't even need that because everything else is pointing you to the Garden. So it's interesting. If you look in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 8, that's actually where we read that the Garden was planted in the east of Eden. And Goshen was in the east of Egypt. And then in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9, that's where we learn about all the vegetation, that God has made this place a green place and it's abounding with all sorts of good things. And then in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 10, we learn that there was one main river flowing through Eden that eventually broke off into four other rivers. And so it's a place surrounded by rivers and water. And, you'll remember, it's in this place that God gives the command to do what? Be fruitful and multiply. Now, isn't that amazing? So you have this, what seems like, redemption. I mean, if this included all of the people of God, you would think, this is paradise. This is the new heavens and the new earth here on this earth, that God has fulfilled all his purposes, and yet we know that it's not, that he's got other plans in mind. So, so what exactly is the Easter egg? What is pointing us forward to the ultimate fulfillment? What is the ultimate fulfillment of this, of this scene that we see here? Paradise, right? Restoration. The new creation in Christ Jesus, right? 
Because the Bible, if you read the book of Revelation, which we're going to study together for the next years, then you'll see that at the end, you're in a garden paradise again, right? And there's the tree of life, there's water flowing, there's all this good stuff in the new heavens and new earth. And this comes about because of the restoration of Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus says in Revelation? He says, I'm doing what? I'm making all things new. I'm bringing about restoration. Because that picture of Eden, that was God's vision for creation. That was what he wanted for creation. He wanted all of his people in paradise who were going to spread his kingdom and his glory to the ends of the earth where they would be fruitful and multiply in this paradise setting. And it doesn't happen. We ruined it because of sin. But Jesus says, I'm making all things new. I'm going to bring it to pass. God's vision will become a reality, which is why Romans 8, and we'll get there in a year or two, in Romans 8, it, the Bible says even creation itself is groaning for this. They know that this is God's plan, and so creation is groaning for God to come and make this a reality. And Jesus says, I am making all things new. I'm doing it now. And he's doing it with us, too, right? Because in Christ, we become new creations. He takes what's old and corrupted, and he does what? He makes it new. We're an entirely new creation. You had God's image. That was what we had in the beginning. And we marred that with sin. We destroyed it. And God says, in Jesus, I will bring restoration. I will restore it. I will make you new. And this is how God is undoing sin's curse. It's by being faithful to fulfill his promises in Christ. Everything that's pictured in the beginning of Genesis is going to be fulfilled in Christ Jesus. God is going to make it a reality in Christ. He's going to bring it about in Christ. We're going to see it in Christ. And so what the Bible is wanting us to know here is in Christ, God provides restoration. God provides restoration. As I said, he provides restoration for us, where he takes what was broken and marred and destroyed by sin, and he makes it new. He restores our relationship with him, which we broke again with our sin, fractured that. He's going to restore that relationship. He even restores our relationships with each other, right? Because think back to the beginning of Genesis. First, man sinned against God, and then Genesis chapter 4, what did man start doing? Sinning against each other. Cain killed Abel. And so we need the vertical dimension to be restored. God does that in Christ. We also need that horizontal dimension to be restored. And God does that in Christ as well. He does it with creation. And so these are such cool chapters because they have all these little callbacks and Easter eggs that are saying, look back to the beginning. Remember those themes. Remember redemptive history. Remember what God is doing. And then it points us forward and says, and see how it's all fulfilled in Christ. And so this is how God's undoing sin's curse, by bringing all those promises to pass in Christ. And that's a cool message, isn't it? All right, word of wisdom goes to Lowell Caldwell. And that's the word of wisdom for tonight.